Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, Zoom's new security problem and corporate America gets a return to work reality check. But first, the Essential Workers Bill of Rights. That's the name of a new proposal from Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and California Congressman Ro Khanna, which would create new requirements for companies involved in essential services. Everything from healthcare to grocery stores to gig economy drivers to childcare. So far, this is more a bullet point list of principles than legislative text, with Warren and Khanna asking that it either evolve into law as a standalone bill or be incorporated into the so-called phase four stimulus plan. Among the proposal's tent poles are adequate protective equipment, which would be free of charge to workers, hazard pay, retroactive to the start of the crisis, universal paid sick leave, whistleblower protections, health care coverage for the uninsured, and other protections for unions and unionization efforts. It's a lot. But the sponsors argue that this is the moment when typically invisible workers have a giant spotlight shown upon them, and that now is when Americans might support proposals for people who they might otherwise ignore. But again, it is a lot, particularly given all the other balls that Congress and essential businesses are currently trying to juggle. So let's dig in with Representative Ro Khanna of California's 17th District, which covers much of Silicon Valley. So Congressman, why introduce this essential workers bill of rights now, as opposed to say either a little bit earlier or maybe wait until the phase four stimulus is really under negotiation? Well, it needs to be part of the phase four stimulus. Here's the reality. 60 million Americans are still working. If you think, how are we having the Zoom conversation? Are people going to work to keep the internet running, to keep electricity flowing, to deliver groceries, to make sure that people are still getting medicine, to care for the sick? And they need to be treated with dignity. They need to have hazard pay. They need to be kept safe. They need to make sure they have childcare. This is essential. And I think a lot of these workers, frankly, were invisible in an age of digital technology. And now we're appreciating how essential they are. So Senator Warren and I believe that this has to be our priority in stimulus for Talk to me a little bit about some of the things in here and kind of how you connect the dots. So, for example, there's a lack of universal paid sick leave, including with family medical leave. How does that, from your perspective, exacerbate the overall crisis that we're currently facing? Well, it exacerbates it in several ways. First of all, a lot of these folks are working, have kids, and they don't have childcare, and they have to go into work. Who's going to look after their kids? They don't have sick leave or family leave. So if they have someone in their family who is sick, or if they themselves are sick, some of those people are still going in because they need a paycheck. They ought to have paid family and paid sick leave. The biggest thing is they ought to be paid more so that they have a livable wage. I mean, one of the things, it's still early, but the studies are suggesting that people who are working, particularly in jobs where they have contact, are at a higher risk of getting COVID-19. The first kind of bullet point in this is uh, personal protective equipment or PPE for all essential workers. How do you square that with the reality that, as you know and I know, a lot of both, not just, you know, gig economy workers, for example, but even hospitals, which you think would have adequate access to PPE, can't get it. Not that they're not trying to get it. They have struggled to get it. How do you reconcile those two things? If this were to become law and you are a company which has essential workers, a supermarket or whatever, and they can't get adequate PPE, what happens then under the your kind of rubric? Great question. We're not talking about making sure that every uh, grocery store clerk has an N95 mask. What we're saying is that you shouldn't have to show up to your grocery store without social distancing, without having some kind of protection or mask, without having some kind of safety regulations. I mean, I had someone in my district who had me 
in our office called the grocery store. I don't want to single them out because she felt that she wasn't having basic social distancing enforced and she wasn't being able to wear gloves. So what this is saying is take the basic precautions to keep people safe. No one is going to blame a grocery store for not having N95 masks. You know, it's interesting. This plays a little bit to this kind of state versus federal conversation that's come up a bit in the particular in the last day with President Trump's press conference yesterday and Andrew Cuomo's comments this morning. As you just said, those sorts of precautions or those sorts of rules, why do that at the federal level rather than have just individual governors or state legislatures do it on the local level, particularly because a lot of the talk about, quote, reopening, a lot of the talk seems to be that's going to have to go in phases and, and different regions are going to have to do it differently, depending on density and, and other things. I understand why opening may be at a regional question, but the reason we have national regulation is we don't want to race to the bottom. If you have a higher minimum wage in one place or more worker protections in one state as opposed to another, then what happens is companies go to the forum with the least regulation. We've seen this time and again. That's why you need to have a uniform standard that says you need to treat workers with basic respect no matter where you are so you don't have that race to the bottom. A lot of these items obviously are, are specific to the coronavirus crisis. You know, for example, PPE isn't something you probably would have put in a bill you know, three months ago. You wouldn't have considered to do it. That said, some of the other things in here, for example, the, the changing of uh, independent contractors, for example, Uber, Lyft drivers, and changing their classification seems to be a broader political goal that you would have had three months ago. Why include that in this bill? Well, it's not just Uber and Lyft drivers, because I represent Silicon Valley. You know, it's about bus drivers and janitors and food service workers. And here's how it works. A lot of them are doing work for the big tech companies, but they're employed by a subcontractor. And so when these big tech companies say, we're going to pay everyone and we're going to give everyone benefits through this crisis, that often doesn't include these contractors. And they're doing such hard work that keeps the Valley running. They deserve to be treated as employees. And there is National Labor Relations Board case law that says they should have those bargaining rights. I've been pushing for this as a Senator Warren well before this crisis. But I think this crisis exacerbates the inequities. It exacerbates how if you're a contractor, you're more vulnerable than if you're an employee. And so it's a time to push forward. As you say, you represent a lot or don't represent tech companies, but you have a lot of tech companies in your district. Um, when it comes to the independent contractor, even some of the hazard pay and obviously every company and, and grocery chain and hospital is different, but particularly for a lot of the so-called gig economy companies, I don't know if they would say this because they don't like to talk about how bad their actual business models are, but they would say they're unprofitable companies, even when they've got massive increases, for example, in food and food delivery, they're still unprofitable companies. Can they afford to pay workers a lot more right now, retroactively, as you say? Literally, can they afford it? Uber makes this argument. But first of all, I say, well, how can a company be worth $50 billion? I mean, what they're doing is getting capital at a cheaper rate than they should because of a flawed business model that's exploiting the people who are doing the driving. So if they had a realistic business model, maybe they wouldn't be worth $40, 50000000000 billion. Their founders wouldn't have made billions of dollars. Maybe the cost of capital would be more because the growth rate would be more and they'd have to price their services more. So they may not have as rapid growth and as rapid adoption. But we can't say that profitability should trump basic regulations. And I think what we need, I have confidence in Silicon Valley. There are a lot of innovative people, and most of the innovative people do it based on the rules. And if we follow those rules, there'll be other apps and ride-sharing companies that come about that uh, follow the rules. It's been about 24 hours since uh, you and Senator Warren uh, released this, at least releases publicly. Do you have any sense right now if you've got support for at least the majority of these things from anybody on the other side of the aisle? I don't know if we'll have on the other side of the aisle. I do think we will have a lot of support 
with uh, the speaker, which and she matters uh, immensely because if the speaker insists on something with us having the House majority, she can get that into the final bill. And I, I'm confident we will be able to get a few of these priorities into the final bill and the big challenge is to convince the speaker. But, you know, this has resonated. I was out for a walk today in the morning and someone who was doing uh, window uh, washing uh, came to me and said, thank you for what Senator Warren and you are doing. Obviously, you heard about it because of Senator Warren. I mean, she has a, a big following, but something that people are paying attention to. Speaking of the speaker and, and, and your job, the House right at this, this moment isn't coming back into session until May 4th, short of what Steny Hoyer yesterday referred to as a, quote, emergency. If this isn't an emergency, what would qualify? Let me say a couple of things. First, we are doing work. I mean, we're on conference calls. We're having today itself. I have two committee hearings with the Oversight Committee. We have uh, conference calls with the caucus. But some of us have been saying, well, why can't you do remote voting? Their arguments make no sense about why we can't. Uh, first of all, they say, well, there's a security breach. Well, if there was a security breach, if I said I'm going to vote for Senator Warren in my worker bill of rights, and suddenly the Kana vote came as no, uh, people would be able to figure that out very clearly. So it's not hard to verify. And if you talk to people in my district with blockchain data use or with network security, they can easily design a system that allows remote voting. I mean, currently, the House has electronic voting. So it's not like we're voting in like we did in the founding. I mean, you go, you put your card in and you vote electronically. So I think this is a generational divide. There are many of us who are pushing to modernize Congress into the 21st century and adopt technology to allow it to function in crises like this. Congressman Ro Khanna of California, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My final two right after this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a new security problem for Zoom, the app without which most Americans wouldn't have been able to really celebrate Easter or Passover. So a cyber risk assessment firm called Cybel recently discovered around half a million Zoom credentials floating around the dark web and managed to buy them for less than a penny a piece. Included were usernames, passwords, meeting host keys, and meeting URLs. Now it appears that a lot of these credentials are pretty old and might've been gathered by what's known as a credential stuffing attack kind of a brute force hacking strategy that relies on passwords for other sites that have been floating around for a while. So if you are logging on to Zoom via the same password you used for a Hotmail account 10 years ago, or even a Gmail account one year ago, it's time to switch things up. And finally, corporate America is coming around to the realization that reopening the country will be harder than closing it was. A PwC survey of 50 chief financial officers asked if the coronavirus outbreak ended today, how long would it take their company to return to business as usual? Only 22% said it would take less than a month, which is down from 66% when the same question was asked in March. 5% say it would take more than a year to get back to normal, a reply that absolutely no one gave during the prior survey. In the meantime, 82% of CFOs also say that their current focus is on reducing costs. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Dolphin Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.